let's uh, let's go go ahead and get started. Uh, welcome to Cato. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm a senior fellow in constitutional studies here and the editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review, which is coming out in uh, less than two months now, uh, and will be available, uh, you know, from our website. Put a little plug about that. Um, uh, we're pleased here to prevent co uh, present co-sponsor debate uh, on the book by my colleague uh, Chip Miller and my absent colleague Bob Levy, uh, The Dirty Dozen, uh, with ACS. Um, uh, this, this will go about an hour, uh, the debate, then we'll have some Q&A, um, and then uh, we'll have lunch upstairs. And uh, that's all I have to say at this point. I'll turn it over to Amir Trahan of the American Constitution Society. Hello. Thanks. As uh, Ilya said, I'm Mira Trahan, and I just wanted to welcome you all from ACS. Um, those of you who are unfamiliar with ACS and couldn't catch me on the mic a few seconds ago, ACS is a national network of lawyers, law students, and policymakers dedicated to ensuring that the values of individual rights and liberties, human dignity, and access to justice enjoy their rightful central place in American law and policy. I uh, really want to thank Cato for um, bringing to our attention before it came out, this fascinating book that we're going to discuss here today. Um, we're really glad to be a part of this event and to co-sponsor with Cato. While I know our members sometimes have differing views on certain topics, I think both organizations strive to be a source for reasoned, thoughtful debate, and I'm really happy it's worked out today, and I hope it's the first of many successful collaborations. I'd now like to turn it over to Amanda Frost, our moderator, who is a professor at American University's Washington College of Law and the ideal person, I think, to help walk us through the discussion today. Amanda? Thank you, and thanks to Cato and ACS for uh, organizing this event. Um, our, our format today is going to be as follows. Uh, first, we're, we're going to have each of our panelists speak for a few minutes about their impressions of the books and the, the book and the criteria for the case selection. Um, and uh, then we're going to just start an informal debate among the, the four panelists. And uh, as Ilya mentioned, the last half an hour or so, we're going to uh, turn to you, and we would really like... Uh, you all to uh, raise questions and uh, maybe disagree with or agree with points that the panelists have made. Um, so uh, I, why don't I begin by introducing, I'm going to give some uh, truncated introductions uh, to our panelists so we can get right to the debate. Um, David Barron, to, to my left, is a professor of law at Harvard Law School. His research focuses on local government, federalism, constitutional law, and separation of powers. Um, and his articles on these topics have appeared in many law reviews. He's the co-author of a leading case book in the field of local government and the forthcoming book, City Bound, How States Stifle Urban Innovation. Uh, Doug Kendall, also to my left, is founder and president of the, Constitution, uh, the Constitutional Accountability Center, a think tank, law firm, and action center dedicated to fulfilling the progressive promise of our Constitution's text and history, he previously founded and directed Community Rights Council, CAC's predecessor organization, and he's represented state and local government clients in state and federal appellate courts around the country and before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Ch uh, William Chip Meller, to my right, uh, serves as president and general counsel of the Institute for Justice, which he co-founded. 
Meller litigates constitutional cases nationwide, protecting economic liberty, property rights, school choice, and the First Amendment. And, of course, he's the co-author of, uh, with the Cato Institute's Bob Levy, of the book we are here to discuss today, The Dirty Dozen. Um, finally, Ilya Shapiro, Shapiro, also to my right, is a senior fellow in constitutional studies and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Before joining Cato, he was special assistant advisor to the multinational uh, force uh, Iraq on rule of law issues, and he practiced international political and commercial and antitrust litigation at Patton Boggs and Clary Gottlieb. Um, now, as I said, we're going to begin with about five minutes from each of our panelists, and we're going to start with uh, Chip, who will spend, as I said, about five minutes discussing the criteria that he and Bob used to select the Dirty Dozen, the 12 cases profiled in his book. And then we'll turn for, to Ilya, who will spend about five minutes discussing the cases that Chip selected, some of the specific cases, not all of them, obviously, to uh, uh, describe how these cases uh, uh, satisfy the criteria that Chip and Bob have selected. So, uh, Chip, turning to you. Well, thank you, Amanda, and thanks to ACS and the Cato Institute for hosting this event today. Delighted to be here to discuss the Dirty Dozen. And to start with the overriding theme of the book, the overriding theme of the Dirty Dozen is that through a relatively limited number of cases decided since the New Deal, the Supreme Court has effectively amended the Constitution. And in doing so, it has had a systemic and negative impact on our governing institutions and our rights. Because some of these cases occurred decades ago or involve obscure facts, it's all too easy to overlook just how radically they transformed our Constitution and our country. The Dirty Dozen is designed to tell that story. That's what we wanted to achieve with the book. The cases we selected are designed to illustrate just how this occurred. We took 12 cases that we think illustrate just how the court has taken us from a constitutional government to one in which there's generally unbridled government authority, unlimited by the Constitution. To put it in perspective, just think for a minute about this. Today, there are 319 executive departments and independent agencies at the federal level. Every year, over 70,000 pages appear in the Federal Register announcing new and proposed rules and regulations. There are 4,000 criminal statutes at the federal level. There's somewhere between 10,000 and 300,000 regulations that carry criminal sanctions. The mere ambiguity of that number should give you some sense of how rampant the powers are. That kind of power has been enabled and abetted by the Supreme Court. And that's not the way America was meant to operate. We were intended to be a government, uh, a country with limited government and maximum freedom of the individual. Now, when courts come to judging constitutional matters, it's important that they have a theory of, of constitutional uh, governance and of individual rights. In our view, that's one that looks at the federal government as having, through the Constitution, limited, separated, and enumerated powers. If the power is not granted to the government, the federal government by the Constitution, it does not have authority to act in that respect. Individuals, in contrast, enjoy natural rights, some of which are reflected in the Bill of Rights, others of which are retained by the people. What this really boils down to, as Randy Barnett has said, is that the Constitution is animated by a presumption of liberty. And that should really be the starting point for all judicial analysis affecting constitutional matters. If 
there's need for a change in the Constitution because of changed circumstances in, in economics or in technology or some, something like that, the Constitution provides for the means for such change to occur, and that's through the amendment process. Now, that's a process that was created by the founders to adapt the Constitution, but created in such a way as to be deliberately arduous. Change was not to be undertaken lightly because the founders thought they pretty much got it right. As a result, since the Bill of Rights was added to the Constitution in 1791, it's been amended only 17 times. But nevertheless, profound changes have occurred in another way. The Supreme Court has accomplished through the back door what the Congress and the states were not or did not accomplish through the amendment process. The words in the Constitution, if you look there today, are the same as what the founders wrote. But their meaning, their meaning has been profoundly transformed. Liberals and conservatives share the blame in this regard. Liberals are progressive, uh, progressives who, had, who uh, think that the, li- the notion of the living constitution or active liberty is, is the best way to go, really in, may like the outcome that that, that kind of approach uh, obtains in certain instances, but inevitably will find that judges under that theory are allowed to exercise basically unfettered policy preferences. Conservatives, on the other hand, may recognize constraints within the Constitution in certain matters, but are all too often ready to look the other way when it comes to matters like national security, criminal law, or private social and moral behavior. They adhere to something they call judicial restraint, which increasingly today means basically rubber stamp deference to legislative and executive authority. What this means as a bottom line matter is that conservatives and libertarians, starting from different ends of the political spectrum for different rationales, are working towards the same purpose or the same goal, expanded government authority. Well, that means that today, instead of a presumption of liberty, what we have is a presumption in favor of government authority. As a result of the cases that we talk about in the Dirty Dozen, today, whether it's the Commerce Clause, the Takings Clause, the Due Process Clause, the Contracts Clause, or the General Welfare Clause, the debate is whether there's any, any real limit imposed on government authority by these clauses. And typically the answer is no. What that means is that we are increasingly dependent upon the self-restraint of our governing institutions to protect our rights. And that is a commodity that's in chronically short supply. The only solution for this is what we call in the book, Judicial Engagement, a principled, consistent approach to constitutional interpretation where the court goes back, looks where it made what we consider to be errors, and begins to get it right. It doesn't have to happen, can't happen overnight, but they have to start somewhere, and we think any one of the dirty dozen is a good place to start. Well, and they may have already started there. Uh, as we know, we, we were uh, describing how the title of the book should now be The Awful Eleven in light of the Heller decision. Um, so we're already uh, one down. Um, but let me turn to Ilya here to maybe discuss some of these cases and how they illustrate the points that were just made by Chip. Thanks, Amanda. And of course, I'm only here because Bob Levy, Chip's co-author, couldn't be here. Um, and I will you know, try to, to uh, fill his... Uh, large shoes as, as much as I can, although I, I, I told the marketing department when they asked me whether I could do this that uh, that was fine, but I definitely was not going to shave my head. Bob, as you, some of you might know, is completely bald. Um, so I'll pick, uh, there are two sections to this book, as, as those of you who have uh, read know. The first part is on expanding government, and the, the second part is on eroding freedom. I'm going to pick uh, one case in the short time I have now from each of these sections, and we'll hopefully be able to get into some of the others uh, later on. 
uh, which uh, isn't to say that, uh, you know, like the Ninth Amendment, my choosing these cases is not to deny or disparage others that remain and are equally valid and equally awful, uh, uh, equally dirty in the book. From the section on expanding government powers, I am going to focus on uh, the power to regulate uh, interstate commerce. All of you will turn to your pocket constitutions. uh, In Article 1, Section 3, I'm sorry, Article 1, Section 8, Part 3 of Section 8. Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. By the way, this Cato Constitution, you you buy the Constitution, you get the Declaration of Independence for free. It's a good deal. Um, So to regulate commerce among the several states. What does that mean? There's lots of – that's actually a, a very rich line. Commerce Uh, At the time of the founding, um, and in terms of looking at other documents from the era, commerce meant trade. It didn't mean manufacture, it didn't mean agriculture, it didn't mean production. All of these things were separate words. Um, So commerce here is is trade, exchange of of these other things, exchange of products and so forth. Uh, Regulate means to make regular. It doesn't mean ban. It it means to to regularize, to make sure the same rules apply uh, where? Well, among the several states. Uh, not within a state, not, uh, you know, between foreign countries, uh, but, you know, the first part says with foreign nations. This part says among the several states. So the interstate commerce clause, as it's commonly known. And the case that uh, Chip and Bob selected, uh, quite logically, to illustrate um, the court's errors in this field uh, are, is uh, Wickert versus Filburn, a case from 1942, the height of the New Deal, um, in this case, uh, it involved a, a small farmer in Ohio who had some poultry, some eggs, some milk, um, and a little bit of wheat. Um, most of what he produced, he consumed himself. Uh, some of it, a very small portion, he sold at the local farmer's market in town. At the time, there was a, a wheat board that controlled how much wheat you could grow on your land, uh, gave you a, an allotment, uh, you know, the, there's, a, there's a scale you know, based on how much acreage you have and other factors and, you know, what the particular bureaucrat had for lunch or, you know, what, you know whatever is, is, is involved, they set that allotment. And, and this farmer, uh, Mr. Filburn, um, violated that. He, he grew more wheat than, than was allowed, um, even though he wasn't selling this wheat, he wasn't taking it to a n- nearby state, uh, you know, he was just, you know, growing more to feed his chickens, to consume himself and you know, maybe take some leftovers to the, uh, to the farmer's market to make ends meet. Um, the court found that uh, although his activity, of course, by itself was an interstate commerce, uh, you take all of these small farmers, put them together, and that has a substantial effect on interstate commerce. Uh, again, he was not trading with anybody. He was, what he was cited for was violating this allotment act uh, whereby he was growing too much wheat. Uh, and, and the court said, as I said, that, that this is a substantial effect. Um, I'm going to read from Justice Jackson's um, how, this, how this worked. Even if Filburn's activity be local, and though it may not be regarded as commerce, it may still, whatever its nature, be reached by Congress if it exerts a substantial economic effect on, economic, on interstate commerce. And now I'll read a little bit from the book. And I, when I do this, it's, it's scholarship. If Chip were to do this, it would be you know, hyping his book. But 
Here's uh, uh, employing logic that can be described as lawyerly in the worst sense of that term. Jackson reasoned that while Filburn did not sell his wheat in interstate commerce, he did consume wheat on his own farm. Had Filburn not grown that wheat himself, he would have had to purchase it. Even though Filburn's purchase might have had an infinitesimally small effect on the interstate wheat market, there may have been many similarly situated farmers. The aggregation of all these purchases might have had a substantial effect, and the price of wheat had a substantial effect on the interstate wheat trade. Therefore, the power to regulate interstate commerce includes the power to tell Roscoe Filburn how much wheat he could grow on his own farm for his own use. I mean, this is kind of like uh, a butterfly flapping its wings somewhere, and you aggregate all these butterflies, and somehow they create a tsunami that you know is, has to be constitutionalized. Um, for for about 50 years, 40 years, the court uh, did not touch this. Uh, there seemed to be some movement in, in, in the late 90s with the Lopez and then the Morrison case where the court found that because Congress was regulating uh, not economic activity, in one case a, a gun-free school uh, zone regulation, in the other case a Violent Against Women Act uh, affecting the criminalization of, of certain types of otherwise uh, state crimes, the federalization of, of them, the court took a, seemed to be a, a, taking a step back uh, using the Interstate Commerce Clause, reading it as it was meant to be. Uh, this was short-lived, however, in 2005 in the case of Gonzalez versus Raich. The court found what's come to be known as the uh, drug war exception to the Constitution. And even though two women in California, per California law, uh, were growing marijuana plants for their own medicinal use as prescribed by their physician, uh, that came into conflict with the Controlled Substances Act, uh, and therefore uh, what the, the federal government could prohibit it. And I, I came into, into um, uh, close contact with this issue as well. Recently, we Cato filed a, an amicus brief in the case of Baylor versus United States where um, an ordinary uh, robber of a, uh, of a uh, pizza shop was charged for, not for robbery under, under state law or theft or anything like possession of a handgun, under, you know, no, nothing like that, he was charged with uh, violating or interfering with interstate commerce because the uh, tomato sauce, mozzarella, and wheat used in the pizza came from different states than this pizza shop, which happened to be in, in Cleveland, Ohio. So this, this is a uh, continuing detriment to the Constitution. Under eroding freedom, I'll choose a case that, of course, is very near and dear to Chip's heart, the Kilo case. Uh, which, uh, if you again will refer to the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, which says that private property, where is it? Um, Nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. In the Kelo case, uh, Suzette Kelo's little pink house in uh, New London, Connecticut, was going to be condemned not to put in a freeway or a sewage plant or one of these public works um, that was, you know, undisputed, an army base that's, you know, public use, uh, pretty well settled. Uh, instead, it was to be given to uh, Pfizer Pharmaceutical Company as part of their office park that, that was hopefully going to bring jobs and, more importantly, tax revenue to the state and municipality. Uh, well, the court, in a 5-4 decision by Justice Stevens, reasoned that, um, well, transferring from one private party to another private party is public use because the public benefits from this transfer in, in theory. Uh, there's, there's more tax revenue and so forth. Uh, as a side note, I should mention that now, three years later, uh, the office park is built, but the land uh, from which uh, Suzette Kilo's house has since been moved, it's now a monument, 
uh, to the to the takings clause and, and to this this battle uh, against eminent domain uh, is not being used at all. It's lying follow. There's no plans to use it, and uh, the the project has not generated the uh, the tax revenues and and uh, uh, jobs that that it was that, that was expected. That's as a side note, but. Um, Justice O'Connor, I'll quote from one of her, um, from her dissent in this case. Uh, let's see, where is it? No, you know what? I, I had her dissent from Gonzalez versus Rach. Also very good on page 47. I commend that to you. <laughs> but uh, so Justice O'Connor, all, we can fault her for certain things, but, um, uh, and in fact, Chip and Bob do for her opinion in the, in the Grutter affirmative action cases. But on, on Kilo, this rampant abuse of of uh, the government power to to take private property on in a, in a use that's clearly not public by any sense of the word, uh, that's a, a, a clear understanding uh, that, that that's a clear violation of uh, of, of the Constitution. Uh, Amanda, I'll close with the Second Amendment. Amanda mentioned that that the Miller case has been now well, they didn't squarely overrule it, but they interpreted it in a way that you know, correctly has nothing to do with the uh, with the right to keep and bear arms. Now, in the in the Heller case, that uh, my colleague Bob. Uh, organized. It wasn't a Cato case, but he organized it, and uh, now we know that the Second Amendment uh, provides the individual right to keep and bear arms. So for once, the, the court got, uh, got something right and did not further erode our freedoms in that manner. Uh, great. Thank you, Ilya. I'm guessing you already held some of these views before reading the book, but uh, uh, I'm glad you're here as a defender. And let's turn now to uh, a critique uh, in, in the tradition of, of ACS and Cato in, in providing uh, both views here. And I'd like to first turn to Doug Kendall. And uh, if you would, I'd, I've asked Doug to critique the book, if possible, on the author's own terms. That is, a, a, as described in, in the foreword by Richard Epstein, the authors of this book, Chip obviously being one of them, was mm. saying, was, were picking these cases based on the fact they thought the Constitution didn't permit these results and the the consequences, the policy consequences of these decisions were were uh, truly bad for our country. And so, I wanted to uh, see whether I could get David Kendall to, um, sorry, Doug Kendall to describe where he thinks they've gone wrong. Maybe particularly in terms of the Constitution. Does the Constitution mm-hmm. allow the results that the authors claim are impermissible here in these cases? Thanks, Amanda. Um, as Amanda mentioned, I just formed an organization called Constitutional Accountability Center, which uh, promotes a textualist approach to constitutional interpretation from uh, a progressive perspective. There are times when I find myself thinking that the differences between liberals and conservatives on the law aren't really that great, that we are all textualists now, and it's just a matter of convincing each other what the text of the Constitution means. And then I read a book like this. Sometimes I see progressive claims that conservative legal activists want to overturn the New Deal and invalidate much of the 20th century. And I think to myself, that's shameless hyperbole. Then I read a book like this. I want to clarify at the start, just how radical the, uh, the, the positions being advocated in this book are. This book advocates, as I read it, a full-scale return to the Lochner era, 
that which which uh, held sway from the post Civil War period to the early New Deal period. The Lochner era is famous mainly for two things: one, the court invalidated a whole lot of federal legislation protecting health, safety, and welfare affairs beyond the enumerated powers of the federal government. Second, they employed a doctrine <clears throat> of economic uh, economic due process, whereby they invalidated, used a due process clause to invalidate uh, protections or, or uh, infringements on economic liberties at the federal, state, and local level. The first part of this book argues for a return to the Lochner era uh, limits on federal power. The second part argues for a return to the Lochner era's protection of economic liberties. I don't think that there is a single vote on the Supreme Court for either of these propositions. We could argue about Clarence Thomas, who has at times um, made qualified statements along the lines of this. But certainly Justice Scalia, as this book points out, is in some respects the biggest uh, opponent of what this book is advocating. Um, Now, radical is not the same as wrong. Our framers advocated many radical for their time ideas, and we all think of them now as brilliant, not radical. But here I think that radical is wrong, and let me say briefly why. As I just mentioned, the first part of the book is an attack on Supreme Court rulings that have allowed the federal government to exercise broad authority to address national problems. The arguments in these chapters are essentially an argument by fiat. The founders established a government of few and defined powers. The court has granted the federal government sweeping powers to address national problems. Thus, the argument goes, the court has erred. We're not going to resolve this debate here, but let me just tick off a few historical and textual facts that I think fundamentally undermine this premise. First, the Constitutional Convention was held to create a stronger federal government, one that could address the country's geostrategic and commercial needs. Second, the convention established a federal government that, while holding enumerated powers, held powers that were quite broad. Third, at least some of the founding fathers, most notably Alexander Hamilton, wanted a very energetic and powerful federal government, And his views largely prevailed, both in the Washington administration, which set the tone for our entire country's history, and with the Marshall Supreme Court, which in cases like Gibbons versus Ogden and McCullough versus Maryland, adopted a very broad notion of federal power. Fourth, we fought a bloody civil war about the division of federal and state authority, and subsequently, we passed three amendments that shifted vast new authorities to the federal government. Fifth, in the progressive era, we passed two more amendments, amendments not mentioned in this book, one that creates a pool of vast new resources for the federal government and allows progressive taxation, and the 17th Amendment, which takes away a huge tool that states held, the appointments of senators, and, and takes that and gives that to the people. And finally, in the 1930s, this nation plunged into an economic downturn that, was unf- that is unfathomably severe by today's standards. 
rightly or wrongly, government inaction was blamed for that downturn, and government action enabled by the Roosevelt Court is credited for, credited for turning the country around. This text and history explains both why we have a broad and powerful federal government today and why this growth of the federal government is largely uncontroversial, both in legal and political circles. Now, the fact that we have a broad and powerful federal government doesn't mean that its powers are unlimited. And that brings me to the second part of the book, the protection of individual rights from encroachment by federal, state, and local government actors. There's more that I agree with in the second part of the book than the first. I think just about everyone, for example, would agree that Korematsu is one of the worst cases in Supreme Court history. But what I find most interesting about the second part of the book is how dramatically different in tone and tenor it is than the first part of the book. The first part, as I just explained, is stridently textualist and originalist. As I just summarized, the argument again and again is that since the framers in 1789 wouldn't have envisioned the federal government being as broad as it is today, court decisions upholding that government power are wrong. Well, jump forward to Chapter 8, discussing Bennis versus Michigan, and the authors favorably quote Oliver Wendell Holmes for the proposition that, quote, it is revolting to have no better reason for a rule of law than it was laid down at the time of Henry IV. It's hard to imagine a more strident uh, critique of originalism. But even more importantly, I find it difficult to discern any basis for the author's selection of rights cases other than a bias in favor of economic and property rights cases and against cases involving individual liberties. I have sympathy for Tina Bennis, who lost a half interest in a $600 car when her husband got caught sleeping with a prostitute in the car. But I find Joshua DeShaney's case even more sympathetic. Joshua, a profoundly handicapped four-year-old child, was in state custody, then negligently placed back into the care of a father who beat him into a life-threatening coma. I also have sympathy for Harold Glucksberg, a doctor who wanted, his wanted to help his terminally ill patients die with less pain and some modicum of dignity. Both Joshua DeShaney, the plaintiff in DeShaney versus Winnebago County, and Harold Glucksberg, the plaintiff in Washington versus Glucksburg, brought claims for relief under the Constitution to the Supreme Court and were denied. You wonder why their stories aren't included here. And I think ultimately the answer, sadly, is that this book is not so much an account of how the court is doing its job. <clears throat> Rather, it is mainly an attack on a handful of cases that conservative libertarians really don't like. Okay, well, we'll certainly give uh, Chip a chance to respond to that in one minute, but I, I first want to turn to David, um, who I've asked to give us maybe a, a slightly broader view of, of this book and to address whether it's possible to evaluate Supreme Court uh, decisions in this way and uh, whether this book, um, where it goes wrong, if you think it goes wrong, where it goes right, if you think that it got some of these cases right, and, and how you would propose that those of us who are citizens of this country evaluate the work of the Supreme Court. 
A big well, task. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to be a little uh, to be much broader than Doug's uh, completely accurate and persuasive and sweeping uh, depiction of where the book, uh, in my view, uh, goes wrong. It's, I think, a useful exercise for anyone uh, with a constitutional vision of any kind to go through and think about what are the cases you like and what are the cases you don't like and then try and figure out what's guiding you uh, to that. That's, I think, a very useful exercise for people to perform. And I think an issue that's often plagued progressive constitutional uh, lawyers and thinkers has been, do you have anything other than a collection of results that you want? Or is there any larger principle at stake? And that's been an issue which ACS is devoted to trying to help uh, overcome, and I suppose the Cato Institute and others, the Federal Society, have been struggling with that issue uh, from a very different political point of view. Um, But my conclusion after reading this book was, in a sense, a happy one, which is that, as far as I can tell, the other side of the aisle is equally plagued by the lack of any coherent principled uh, vision, and instead they have a collection of disparate results that they don't like, that they have a tough time articulating exactly why it is that it's those positions uh, in particular. So let me just uh, flesh out why I come to that conclusion. You might think that this is a defense of originalist philosophy, and that's certainly the patina that the book uh, has overlaid it to try and give it a coherence. The founders this, the founders that. What's so surprising is when you hit the first chapter on the General Welfare Clause, the first thing you're confronted with is a frank admission the founders disagreed Hamilton thought one thing, Madison thought the other. And then why exactly was Hamilton wrong? We don't really ever have an account from any sort of originalist theory as to how we came to that conclusion. And then when you get later in the book, as Doug points out, to Bennis, there's again a very frank admission of long-standing civil forfeiture uh, practices dating back to the founding, and then even worse from their point of view since it's a state decision in Bennis. The Civil War, they say, frankly, was the moment at which civil forfeiture exploded beyond its normal bounds in admiralty. But, but of course, Bennis is a post-due process Civil War amendment case, and so it's perfectly appropriate to say the founding moment then might well be the Civil War and its approach to forfeiture. And again, there's no real account for why that founding moment uh, isn't the guiding principle and why Bennis didn't come out correctly from an originalist uh, point of view. So there's, originalism doesn't actually seem to be uh, what's holding this all together. Too much of originalism doesn't yield the results they want, and too many of the results they want simply don't have the originalist pedigree uh, that they seem to hope. So so what else is driving it? Well, there's definitely a strong uh, theme of consequentialism uh, throughout the book. So it's not enough to simply say what Madison or Hamilton did retreated to uh, policy analysis at the end. This decision had to be wrongly decided by the court because it's bad. So, for example, why is the decision in Halvering, which upheld Social Security, a bad thing? Surprisingly, because it led to farm subsidies for agribusiness. It wouldn't be the intuitive chain of logic that I would have come to, but the attempt is to get you to see that there's some bad outcome in the world now as a consequence of that decision. That's not originalist argumentation. That's a policy type of analysis. I'd say on that score, a flaw in the book, it seems to me, is a little bit of um, a shell game. Sometimes the bad policy result that they identify is not a direct consequence of the program that was upheld. If you want to say that Halvering was wrong because Social Security was a terrible thing, I think it's incumbent on those who want to make that argument to launch a full-scale attack on the problem with Social Security, not a tribute 
Halvering's defect to the rise of agribusiness subsidies. That seems to me not a, a particularly persuasive way of making the point. Given how fundamentally important Social Security is in the eyes of many people, that's a real debate to have, but I don't think it's made uh, effectively in this uh, manner. Likewise, if you're going to take on uh, Wickard versus Filburn for the terrible consequences it ushered in, I think it's incumbent to say what also happened as a consequence of Wickard versus Filburn. There's another guy besides Mr. Filburn who was doing something entirely local, and that was purchasing goods in-state in Alabama for a barbecue joint. His name, Ollie's Barbecue. And because of Wickard versus Filburn, the Supreme Court of the United States upheld the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Is that a decision that you think is wrong or not? That's the heart of the question. And to say that Wickard versus Filburn is bad, I think, has always been a bit of a fig leaf. Everybody knows that what's really at stake in the Commerce Clause decision is a question of whether the court got it right or wrong when it upheld the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Now, one could say, oh, you don't have to do it under the Commerce Clause. You could do it under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which I would think is a surprising answer to give, given that the typical position gestured out in the book in connection with the Violence Against Women Act is that the Section 5 of the 14th Amendment is a prohibition against state action, not private discrimination. And, of course, Ollie's Barbecue and the Civil Rights Act of 64 was an attack on private discrimination. Okay, this leads me, I think, if it's not consequentialism and not originalism, what is it? Some version of some idea of libertarianism. Now, libertarianism is obviously a complicated philosophy, and it's not quite clear how it lines up with even these cases, I think Richard Epstein makes a nice point at the beginning when he talks about the fine line between what public and private is, public universities and private universities, which is, I think, always been a complicating question uh, for uh, libertarians. But also, something that libertarians, I think, have always had to confront in one form or another is the reality of private power. What does one do about the fact of private power? And I'll just uh, make this point. The book opens with the Social Security Administration and why it should be on Social Security Act and why it should be unconstitutional after Halvering. Terrible infringement on our liberty. It ends with a case about the Supreme Court upholding the right of the government to deny people an opportunity to get an honest job. Now let's think back in Halvering. Why did Congress pass the Social Security Act? As the court said in that case, we were shifting from an agricultural to a manufacturing economy. A study was done of 174 factories at the time. 30, frankly, had a rule prohibiting anyone over 40 from getting a job in the factory. Of all other factories surveyed, only a handful allowed anyone over 50 to get a job. Who was denying people an honest ability to get a job at that time? Clearly large private economic interests. And the response of the government at the time was to do something about that, to not reduce freedom, but, as Roosevelt said at the time, to protect people from the freedom from want, to give them the freedom from want. And so I think that basic dilemma raises a question about the coherence of any simple claim that restraint on government therefore produces freedom and that grants of efficacious power to the government necessarily uh, reduce freedom. Last point. If there's another trope in the book, and it's a standard trope, I think not necessarily of libertarianism, but of conservative jurisprudence at the present time, is to always want to attack the court. Right? We need an enemy. And so the court is going to come in for a lot of drubbing, even though 
miraculously at the end of the day, who shall save us? The court, right? So a real paradox in the uh, analysis in this regard. But I think if you're going to make a case against the court in the name of freedom, one has to grapple with the fact that if there's a reason why the Supreme Court of the United States is revered across the world, as it is, it's because it did more for freedom in our lifetimes than anyone could have imagined. And how did it do it? Because of its root and branch attack on segregation in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And the question that's left open by the rhetoric of the book, for me at least, is, is the constitutional analysis in the book, the supposed coherent principle about the original intent of the framers will guide us or the text will determine everything, does it actually line up and justify what the Supreme Court did during that period of time in which, by all accounts, it struck an enormous blow for human freedom? And I think if the answer to that in any way is no, and I'll just give a hint, the, the book consciously sidesteps the question with respect to Brown. It does not say that Brown was rightly decided or wrongly decided. It says segregation is bad, but it doesn't tell you that the court was correct in deciding Brown. In sidestepping that question, I think there's a large issue still plaguing conservative jurisprudence as to whether all of the results it admires are results it could coherently explain. Well, I'm glad to see we mostly agree. Um, (laughs) But I'd like to turn to Chip, and obviously there's a lot to respond to, but if you could just start off by responding to the point that I think both Doug and David made about accusing uh, you and Bob Levy of not having a consistent principle behind the cases you picked. So I want to give you a chance to respond to that, and then obviously there's a lot on the table. You're right. There, there is a lot raised by their comments that I would like to respond to, and I will start with that and hope we can get into more of it. Bob and I bring to the book a, a theory of constitutional jurisprudence that is described in the book as one that I alluded to earlier, one which looks to the Constitution as one that has a coherent theory of governance and a coherent theory of rights in expressed therein. With the coherent theory of government, there is a recognition that even with the Hamiltonian view, there is a notion of limited government. This is not something that was viewed as a, a governance, government that was to be given just basically a blank check to do whatever it wished or to adapt to whatever was necessary. It was one in which even the federal government under a Hamiltonian view was viewed as having a limitation placed on its authority. Now, those were en- through the enumerated powers. The notion of rights is one that really also in some senses predates the Constitution, but is very much implicit in the Constitution and recognized in the Ninth Amendment as one of the rights retained by the people, the natural rights that we enjoy as individuals that cannot be simply infringed by government uh, uh, through whim, and that it's through our, our giving to government certain powers to protect those rights that government really has its authority to act in the first instance. So, we, we do bring a theory of, of, of constitutional interpretation to this. The cases that we select, I should add, are, are informed by, though not rigidly set by, a survey that we did um, before we did the book. Uh, we asked 74 colleagues in academia uh, to list their preferences, their nominees for the 12 or Supreme Court cases. And as I said, we were guided by, but not bound by, their, their selections. And I'd say about nine of them were if not unanimous, they weren't unanimous, they were always at the top of the list. The rest we picked and chose, and we picked and chose to make two points, and this gets to some of the comments that were made earlier. One is that regardless of the, the um, 
convenient interpretation of history that, that Doug was reciting, which seems to assume that there's always been sort of a, an evolution of inevitability uh, with government, uh, federal government expansion. Nonetheless, nonetheless, there was an explosion of it that occurred after the New Deal. And that did not come about with any sort of recognition of, of sort of the natural evolution from the constitutional times. It came about through very specific cases that we wanted to illustrate as having changed the terms of the debate, changed the interpretation of the Constitution, and really, therefore, had profound consequences on how government expanded thereafter. Um, none of these were, were recognized in sort of an enumerated powers context. They were interpreted through looking at the Constitution to find new meaning in pre-existing uh, uh, clauses, like the Commerce Clause, like the Takings Clause. Um, and so that was, that was the way in which these cases were put forth in there. Um, to raise the specter of Lochner or to say that what we're, we're simply trying to do is return to a bygone era really misses the point of the book. Lochner existed because of another Supreme Court decision many years ago, the slaughterhouse cases. And in the slaughterhouse cases, a key provision of the 14th Amendment, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, was gutted shortly after it was ratified. That left a void in the Constitution, one that was originally in place to protect the rights of newly freed slaves to engage in economic activity, to own property, to engage in contractual relationships without interference from the states. Once that provision was gutted, the court then, in very much the vein that, that I think uh, David was alluding to as sort of noble, began looking at ways to try and do something that was good, that would help people, that would, <laughs> would address a failing that was in place, and come at it from a different direction, which was substantive due process. That was never quite a very good fit because there was no grounding in the Constitution originally. So it has come in for criticism, though I don't really have any problem with the result of Lochner. Um, the, it is true that we um, disagreed with the results of these cases. But it's not to say that we came at it from uh, an originalist point of view. We go to some length in the book to discuss the differences in terminology between originalists and textualists and things like that. Um, but we do come at it with a, a belief that there were outcomes that were detrimental to liberty as a result of these decisions. To the extent that is consequentialist, there is an element of consequentialism in the book, as there is with any discussion of Supreme Court cases that you like or dislike. Um, and these consequences were, as we document, were uh, decisions that expanded federal government authority, or in time state authority, and in the process diminished individual liberty. Now, there's lots of cases that the Supreme Court has decided that diminished individual liberty we could have chosen others. We didn't. Maybe that's a, a criticism of the book that, that others would like to make, and that maybe we'd take nominees to replace the one that uh, uh, Ilya mentioned is now no longer a part of the Dirty Dozen, the Miller case, and round it back up to 12. But the fact is, the ones we picked, uh, we think, illustrate the point we made very well. The Caroline Products and Helvering decision. Now, the point of Helvering is not the, the Social Security system. Um, the Cato Institute has done very, very penetrating analysis of the problems with uh, the Social Security system. I commend that work to your attention if we're going to have a policy discussion about the merits of that program. The point of the Helvering case is that it is, and this is not really a key insight that we're coming up with, this is just the truth. It ushered in the redistribution of state by coupling the taxing and spending authority of Congress in a way that was essentially unmoored. And that did usher in the opportunity for all sorts of programs 
whether they're farm subsidies or welfare entitlements or all matters of redistribution that commonly occur to take place as business as usual on Capitol Hill. And if you wonder why the, the budget is so large, take a look at what goes on with these redistributionist policies and ask yourself, well, where did Congress get the authority to do that? It stems back from the Halvering case. That ushered in this change in, in business as usual. The Caroline Products case bears mention as well, which uh, I think David was alluding to, and when we talk about economic uh, activity. At the time of the New Deal, um, suddenly we had a, a transformation in the way rights were looked at in under the Supreme Court jurisprudence. And we began having tiers of rights, some that were more equal than others, some that were preferred over others. And that was ushered in through one of the dirty dozen, the Caroline Products case, in which through a, a, a footnote, footnote four, the most famous footnote in constitutional jurisprudence, you had a recognition of, of fundamental rights which would receive exalted constitutional protection and those of lesser consequence, economic and property rights, which were basically going to be allowed to be governed what, by what became known as the rational basis test, which means that pretty much any, anything government wants to do will be upheld when it comes to economic and property regulation. That was a profound change. That has rippled through in a way that we, we think is ultimately detrimental to <clears throat> folks trying to earn an honest living and find themselves beset by these arbitrary laws that, that erect cartels or, or create uh, uh, processes that are, are basically impossible to navigate. Now, the more difficult question, and, and the one that really, I think David raises in an interesting way, is the notion of the um, legacy of the court in the realm of civil rights and how, how we address that. What we say about Brown is that we agree with the outcome in that case, but that, and we're not, again, alone in recognizing this, the reasoning that the court employed was creative given the, the nature of the, the evidence and the arguments before it. I mean, the social science that they used by anyone's definition was not real rigorous. It served the purpose of illustrating what they wanted to illustrate, but it wasn't real rigorous social science. But the outcome was okay. So we didn't, we didn't put that in there. We also didn't put Roe versus Wade in, in the case, as a matter, in the book, as a matter of fact. Um, although a lot of the, our colleagues nominated that for consideration because they thought it was wrongly decided. In, in the sense that we did not think it had a, uh, an outcome that expanded government, we didn't include it in there. Um, now, as to the Ali's barbecue case, that one, that one is where you really get into some tough, tough grounds for discussion. And I don't, it, though, though it's tough, I don't think it invalidates either the overall thrust of the dirty dozen or the Wicked versus Filburn uh, critique that Ilya mentioned. But Ali's bar at the time of, of these segregationist laws, clearly the country was at a crossroads, and clearly the court played a heroic role in addressing that. Having said that, they clearly had authority to do so in the context of public accommodations. They clearly had authority to do so in the context of, of, of um, public schools. In the context of private, uh, private accommodations, or, or not accommodations, but private businesses, that is, that is harder, to, harder to find the authority to do in an, any kind of originalist way, any kind of textualist way. Now, the outcome is not one I'm quarreling with. We didn't put it in the book because we think that it, it, it was bad or anything. But I don't think that the fact that, that that is a difficult issue at a difficult time invalidates the, the overall criticism of Wickard, which is that through the, that decision, there is today no, no economic activity beyond the realm uh, reach of the federal government and lots of other activities as well. I mean, All right. So let me break in there and just see uh, you've hit on a, a number of the points that, that David and Doug picked up on. So why don't we see what their response is to what you've said in response to their comments? Um, yeah, I don't disagree that there's a coherent theory behind this, uh, the f attack on federal powers. I just 
think it's fundamentally misguided and wrong. I mean, if you, if you look, let me just read. This is the instructions that the Constitutional Convention gave to what is called the Committee of Detail. The Committee of Detail wrote Article One, Section Eight, enumerated the powers that we hear to be the so is unconstitutional? fundamentally um, here to be so fundamentally limited. These are the instructions given by the convention to the committee. Um, the Congress is to enjoy, and this is, and I start the quote here, uh, the authority to, quote, legislate in all cases for the general interest of the union and also in those cases to which the states are separately incompetent or in which the harmony of the United States may be interrupted by the exercise of individual legislation. Um, that's a remarkably sweeping description of the powers that the convention instructed the federal government to have. And I think that is essentially the view of the federal government that Hamilton had that prevailed upon uh, the Washington administration that was adopted by the Marshall Supreme Court. And second, when you get to the, the uh, Ollie's barbecue case, um, I, I think it, that illustrates a fundamental difference about what we did to this country after the Civil War, what the Civil War was all about, and what the Reconstruction Amendments were all about. I think if you look at the the, you know, the, the, the framers of the Reconstruction and, and Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, they are specifically looking to a number of Supreme Court cases like Prigg versus Pennsylvania, where the federal government was granted remarkable authority under a unenumerated power, the Fugitive Slave Clause, to go into, you know, to authorize um, intrusion into private homes and private e enterprises in states in the north to retrieve and gather up slaves and, and deliver them back to their owners. And so the framers looked at that history, and that's the history upon which the powers that the federal government was given under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to say that the federal government after the Reconstruction can't use Section 5 authority um, to, uh, you know, to, to, to get at private discrimination, I think is, is just flat wrong, notwithstanding the fact that the Supreme Court has said that. And that's, you know, there's, there's a series of rulings, some of which, uh, you know, a point of agreement that I think we have that may surprise you is that I think the court is just as wrong in cases like Slaughterhouse and Cruikshank, as you do in throwing out the Privileges or Immunities Clause. And I think it does uh, open up a bit of a can of worms about what are the unenumerated rights that are protected as privileges or immunities, because I think it is beyond just the Bill of Rights. But I think, and something that I don't think the book fully recognizes or it comes to grip with at all are, are what are those privileges or immunities? How do we that go beyond the, the specific Bill of Rights? And just the idea that we have this right to make an honest living and what that is and just, just that, that that's out there and that's fully protected as much as the right to full speech, which is the impression that Chapter 11 of this book gets, I, I think is, is fundamentally wrong. Well, I'd like to turn to Ilya because um, we've now had a lot of discussion about, well, what do we do about the fact that private power can often be used in ways where, according to Doug and David, we need government protection from that private power. So if you have a response to... Uh, either um, one, one of the uh, 
one of the uh, able speakers, panelists on the other side, mentioned the uh, 16th and 17th Amendments, the income tax, the power, and I'll get to the question on private discrimination. This is a roundabout way. The income tax is the 16th Amendment and the direct election of senators, uh, the 17th Amendment. Two progressive era innovations in the Constitution that I think are terrible for reasons that I won't get into here. But that's the proper way of going about doing those things. If you want an income tax, which the Constitution, the, even the progressives recognized, did not provide for, uh, pass a constitutional amendment. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll commend to you Article 5 of the Constitution. I mean, the handy, handy thing here, right? Uh, the process for amending the Constitution. We know it from our fourth grade you know, civics classes. Well, all of you did. I went to school in Canada. But anyway. Um, Social Security... We can argue again. We can have this policy debate about, uh, as, as Chip mentioned, whether it should be privatized, whether it's, you know. But it's, it's clear that it's not constitutional. Now, I don't doubt that at the time of the New Deal that you could have passed a, 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 a constitutional amendment allowing Social Security and some of these other programs. There were debates within the, within the uh, uh, Roosevelt administration about whether to uh, pursue some of these things through the courts um, or through the constitutional amendment process or to just lay down the policy and try to pack the court and ram it through the courts. And we know how they, how they went around doing it. The same thing for private discrimination. I think that a private business, we're not talking, again, schools, the government, public accommodations, all these things that, that Chip mentioned, a private business should be able to decide who it hires, who it fires for one reason, any reason, or no reason at all. Uh, who it serves, who it wants to be its customer. Um, that is, uh, I mean, that, that, that's, that's controversial, and perhaps the, uh, this country would revolt against, uh, against that system, against a system that allows private discrimination based on race, just as it now allows uh, private discrimination based on uh, uh, political opinion. You know, the, the Cato Institute doesn't have to hire socialists. Um, Not in D.C., actually. <laughs> you, you, have to, you have to rent your house to somebody who is... Uh, there you go. Another unconstitutional <laughs> provision. <laughs> you, so, but we can have that debate. If we should, are to have a... a, a you know, if, if the majority of the people, through their duly elected representatives, through the constitutional process of amendment, want to have... Uh, wants to, want to uh, constitutionalize prohibitions on private discrimination, let them pass a constitutional amendment. And then we would be... this. It wouldn't be lawyers up here. Why do you want five lawyers talking policy? You know, we do the law. We do the Constitution. Instead, let's get our more able colleagues who, who, who do Social Security, who do uh, uh, health care, up here and debate those issues from a policy perspective. Similarly, all these issues you don't want decided by the nine black-robed lawyers on the Supreme Court. You want uh, democracy, you know, Republican values. I mean... You don't want lawyers deciding these things. And by constitutionalizing these issues, these policy matters, which aren't properly in this Constitution, and remember, this is a manual for the government, for, for how, how the structure of the government, and that's all. It's not a manual for the United States of America. This is what shall go on. All right, so let's get David so to jump in here and say and respond to this idea we should have an yeah. amendment. Well, I just think Ilya's last comment, I think, reinforces my uh, now quite firm sense that there's a deep incoherence in the uh, conservative philosophy at the present moment. I prefer classical liberal. And it follows from this. The last chapter of the book is all about judicial engagement. And the whole comment from Ilya is about the importance of judges just stepping aside and letting democracy run its course. I mean, this is just a deep 
a deep tension. Now, Ilya wants to resolve it because he knows exactly where the constitutional lines already are, and so he knows who has to get amendments at what time and who doesn't. But obviously the debate, the reason why lawyers are involved in debate, the way it's been structured is, is a threshold question of does an amendment need to be obtained or does the existing constitutional framework allow for this governmental activity to occur? One could put the question just as easily back to you, Ilya. On all the cases you don't like, just go get an amendment. No big deal, man. What's the problem? Right? And then we wouldn't have to have the lawyers up here. We wouldn't have to write the book. So it can't be an answer to say that there is an amendment process. The relevant question is, does it need to be used as to any particular controversy and dispute? And one needs tools of analysis to determine whether the amendment process needs to be invoked or whether the existing provisions allow the government to do what it's doing at any given time. And my sort of basic sense is that grappling with what the framework of analysis would be for determining that question is something that's plaguing all sides of debate right now. I'll just end with one uh, fact. As some of you know, Larry Tribe, who wrote uh, a treatise on American constitutional law uh, that's admired in some circles and reviled in others, uh, but by all accounts has been extremely influential, uh, wrote a letter, which was published in Green Bag Magazine not too long ago, which said, as I go to do the next edition of American constitutional law, I can't do it. The sort of conceptual tools have run out to be able to present a whole architecture of American constitutional law in a way that would seem to him satisfying and seem to the public satisfying. And I think even if you look at the state of the conservative justices on the court right now, there's a world of difference between the way John Roberts and Samuel Alito describe conservative constitutionalism and that of Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas. The rhetoric of high principle is lost, The firm sense of what jurisprudential commitments one has is not there. It's a much more internal, common law, precedent-based form of analysis because, as happens at various times in all manners of fields, all disciplines, economics, history, there are periods of time when the world shines bright. We know what to do. And there are periods of time where it's murky and people are stumbling around to try and find something to get by. I think we're very much in the latter phase right now. And I think the book is actually, as I think about it, an artifact of that uh, state of the world. And so while it has the sounds as if we're still in a period of light, at the end of the day, it's just further confirmation to me of how murky the way is for all people in constitutional law at the moment. Um, David has suggested there's an incoherence in our approach on the judicial engagement idea. And if, as I hope you will, you read the book and you see the discussion, you'll find that we, it's not an either-or matter where we say this court is evil, but we want this court to do the right thing. It is a two-pronged approach. You can either amend the Constitution or call upon the court to do the right thing, which is to go back and correct what we view are the errors that it made. That, but that, that latter point is particularly pertinent not so much for progressives who are already adept at using the courts in, in, in advocacy ways of this nature, but this is particularly important for conservatives because all too often they want to take the court entirely out of the equation. So our, our point is one that there are two alternatives. If you don't like what's going on, you can either let it go in an ad hoc fashion the way it is, which I think is going to just lead to even greater incoherence of, uh, of even beyond what David's describing, or you can go to the court and urge them to do the right thing and address the problems that it created by beginning to undo the precedent that created those problems in the first instance. That's what we call for. 
Well, I would like now to open it up to your questions. Um, I, I'll say uh, before we take the first question, please wait to start speaking until the microphone gets to you. Please state your name and affiliation. And uh, please be sure to get fairly quickly to your question for the panelists. We want to make sure to get as many voices uh, heard here as possible. Is there a... Yes, I'm uh, Roger Pilan with the Cato Institute. For those of us who uh, have enjoyed this book, uh, I can only say that uh, Doug and David have given us a rich field of targets, and one hardly knows where to begin. I'll focus, however, on just this main point, the theme of the book, which they said was rather scattered, I find absolutely coherent. It is that this Constitution, as it was uh, completed through the 14th Amendment, authorized a government of limited powers, the exercise of which were designed to secure rights both enumerated and unenumerated and do a few of the things that were authorized. And that brings me to Doug's critique of, um, well, both their critiques of the uh, doctrine of enumerated powers with Hamilton. Uh, it turns out that when you look at the history, Hamilton in the Federalist Papers was a limited government man, to be sure. When he introduced his report on manufacturers in 1791, which was a national industrial policy scheme, it was shelved almost immediately by Congress. In other words, debate between Hamilton and Madison, Jefferson, and all the others was won clearly by those who believed in limited government. You read William Drayton in 1828, you see the same line about the doctrine of enumerated powers. And so I come to my point with respect to Doug. The 16th Amendment and the 17th Amendment did not change that one bit. They, didn't, they gave more money, and they gave a different locus of power for voting, for filling the offices that the Constitution set out. They did not expand the enumerated powers of Congress one iota. I mean, I, I don't know that I can add much to the points I've already made, which is I, I think that a lot of what Hamilton advocated in the National Bank and the, uh, in the assumption of debts and the, the structuring of the federal government was adopted. I think a lot of it was approved in very sweeping opinions by the Marshall Court. I think you're underappreciating um, the amendments and the changes that they made to the federal structure. And I think it's I probably said everything I need to say. Thank you. My, my name is uh, Steve Hank, and I have no real affiliation, um, although I'm a tax attorney. Uh, although I'm an attorney, it has struck me that um, the people who interpret the, Supreme, uh, the, the, the people on the Supreme Court are lawyers who clearly get involved with the textural meaning of words and forget the, the basic principles of the Constitution. It's a limiting document. It's not a statute. It's to tell you how the government works, but it's a limiting document. And it, as I, I would think, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, it should be limited um, in, that, in that regard. You should have a limiting interpretation. And my question to you is that I think we would have been a lot better off having political scientists on the Supreme Court as opposed to attorneys who have this sort of narrow focus that 
that, that we're sort of discussing. They would have understood that if they swore to uphold the Constitution, that they were swearing to uphold the underlying principles, which were limited government, individual liberty over government. Those, it's very clear what the philosophy is behind the, the Constitution. I don't, I don't, do you disagree, Mr. Barron and Kendall, that, that, that those aren't the basic philosophies that, that upon which the, Supreme, of which the uh, Constitution was written? And my question really is, though, do you, do you think perhaps we would have been, do any of you think perhaps we would have been much better off if our Supreme Court nominees would have been political scientists? I understand that most political scientists throughout the, you know, when they're selected probably didn't agree with the libertarian philosophy. But I believe that if, if they're going to swear to the Constitution, they would have understood that they, that they were swearing to uphold what is essentially a libertarian type of document. You can read the preamble. Yeah, I mean, yeah so that's my, my favorite part. So <laughs> this is just one take on what the purpose of the Constitution is. It's from the preamble to the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And my point here is not that it's not libertarian. It's just that it's not only libertarian. So within one passage, we have a reference to liberty and a reference to the general welfare. And that, of course, to, to just this is naive. Yeah, so, so that's, of course, the dilemma. It's why Madison and Hamilton fought. It's why everybody's been fighting for 200 now plus years. And it seems to me not useful, though I take the point, to say that we can solve the problem by simply noting that it's a limiting document. Because it's not only a limiting document. And the question is always going to be, therefore, where to define the limitations. And I think that's the continuing genius, to, in my view, uh, to the Constitution. And maybe it's worth just saying a, a sentence here about uh, a potential conceptual incoherence on the progressive side of constitutionalism at the present moment. So just as if there is a, on the right there's this real tension between what do we think of judges, are we for them or against them, what do we think of the founders, are we for them or against them, maybe we're consequentialists, maybe they got it wrong. A similar thing is happening very much on the progressive side now. There's Cass Sunstein who's saying minimalism, judges should get out of the way. There's another side who says, no, the judges actually are there to protect our liberties and they're very important, we need to have them. And with respect to the underlying principle that's supposed to animate judicial decision, Doug is now very much involved in a project to emphasize the founding and the text, and that can solve all of these questions. I must say, just hearing the back and forth with Roger, it seems to me, as a part of me, that see, the, the idea that we're going to resolve this debate by getting exactly right what in 1791 the report on manufacturers did or didn't say for a world as different as the one we live in now strikes me as not even necessarily what they had in mind about what we would be doing 200-plus years later. Just think about the military, right? Just think, well, it does to me. So just, just think about the military right now. It's a standing army of more than a million people. It was not remotely in the contemplation of what they thought was going to be. And the idea that we can resolve all of this through a fine parsing of the ambiguous texts from 200 years ago rather than thinking in a larger context in the way you're talking about, right? What are the animating principles of the Constitution? Uh, seems to me uh, not helpful. I guess final, final point. 
you mentioned about would we be better off with political scientists, which I think is an extremely relevant question as we think about the next Supreme Court appointments. There's a lot of talk about should we be trying to get people who are not purely steeped in law and academic ideas about law, right, people with a broader sense of the world. What strikes me as so interesting is whenever we've had those people on the court, they seem to have gone in exactly the opposite direction as the one that you would wish that they would go. So from Marshall, who, of course, was basically operating as a foreign affairs advisor while he was on the Supreme Court of the United States, all the way up through the court that decided Brown, which had not a single member with any prior judicial experience. The courts that have been the most engaged in the world and the most political in that sense have been the ones who have been the least inclined to read the principles of the Constitution as being all about limitation. So let me, let me ask if there's anyone who's got a question for Chip or Ilya so that we make sure to get them involved. Um, how about uh, man in the blue shirt in the back row? In the meantime, I'll say I'd rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the phone book than by the Harvard faculty. <laughs> Thank you. This is Dennis Coyle from Catholic University. Uh, a quick point and a question. As a political scientist, I find that idea rather attractive to put us on the court. Uh, <laughs> But then I, I look at my profession at large, I think maybe it's, it would be a very bad idea indeed. Uh, but my question is on incorporation, and I'd, I'd, I'd really like both sides to address it, but specifically for uh, Chip and Ian. Uh, you mentioned Kiwo uh, as a bad decision. Well, the only reason that could have come out in favor of the good guys would be by applying principles of the takings clause. Uh, that is not uh, – the, the takings clause does not apply to states and localities. It's just in the Fifth Amendment. Uh, of course, you know, it's incorporated through the 14th. Is incorporation essentially uh, an illegitimate strategy? Is that not a departure from text and original principles? And would you uh, find a, a principled way to apply the takings clause there, or is that, in fact, uh, a bad principle? And I what I was thinking for the other side is, well, I, I would guess you would be more fond of incorporation because you get the First Amendment and criminal procedural protections, all those great things out of it. Uh, would you agree then that the Second Amendment should be incorporated, applied to states and localities, and welcome a Heller-type decision on a municipality? Thank you. The, the Kelo decision is indeed an interesting one, and as Ilya mentioned, um, it, it arose in a context in which you saw a progression of Supreme Court decisions doing, as I suggested earlier, beginning to transform the definition of what constitutes a public use, um, starting in 1954 and, and moving forward. And as it did so, these were all arising in the context of, of local decision-making, uh, whether it was in Washington, D.C., or Hawaii, or elsewhere. And the, the, there was never an issue of whether there was an incorporation matter to be discussed. I don't really have any problem with incorporation. Um, you know, I don't consider myself an originalist, as as uh, David was trying to uh, characterize me. I think that it is a doctrine that has been applied. It's well established. I think the next interesting debate will be over the outcome of the Heller case and what kind of incorporation we'll see in in the wake of that. So, um, I think that Kilo was was properly before the court. I think it was inevitably before the court, and I think it came out wrong. I'll add briefly that uh, whether if you're an originalist, and I'm not going to. I'm not sure whether I am or not, but uh, the 14th Amendment, all amendments are part of the Constitution. So you look at the original meaning or understanding or however you apply originalism to the particular amendment as well. And I think it's, it's sound constitutionally to say that with the post-Civil War amendments that the Bill of Rights, including the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, 
are uh, incorporated against the states. To me, that's not controversial or incoherent with uh, anything else that I've said. Well, you know, I think I'm going to postpone or, or put off, maybe you can ask after the session is over, your second part of your question, only because it doesn't go so directly to the subject of the book, and I want to make sure we get as many people as possible participating here. Plain, uh, I just finished a career as a mostly civil rights attorney in South Carolina, um, and um, Forty years ago, when I was in first uh, year of law school, I learned that there were always two lines of authority. This would apply to commercial law. This would apply to uh, various kinds of personal injury issues. It certainly seems to me to have applied over the decades to constitutional law in many respects. I'd be interested in the comments both of uh, the author's perspective and the, the critique as to how this um, fundamental aspect of judging, which is to have two lineages of decisions um, from which the judges uh, can pick in a particular case, may have influence the development of the issues that they're uh, addressing. Well, if I, if, if I understand your, correct, your uh, question correctly, and you're referring to both perhaps two competing versions of, of precedent or one more strong than the other, or do you mean just two advocates presenting it? Either way, it seems to me that courts come at this wrestling with both the facts before them and the legal theories that are being argued, of course. And that places all the more uh, importance on what I was talking about earlier, which is judges who come to this with some kind of coherent and consistent theory of government and, and individual rights. And it actually raises the question, then, of what kind of judicial nomination process should we have and what can we look forward to in the next go-round when the uh, next president appoints new members to the Supreme Court. And it seems to me that one of the real problems we've got now is that the legacy of, of past nomination battles has gotten to the point where it, it's deemed, at least on the Republican side of the, the aisle, essential that you find people who have non-controversial or, or, in the Chief Justice's case, you know, almost a, a non-existent record on which you can judge what their philosophy is. And then when you go before the, uh, the, not the, the committee, basically – it's both such a partisan and hostile place and also a place where the, the nominee is under almost handcuffs and a gag order to say that almost nothing controversial or definitive can be said. And clearly that's appropriate when you're talking about outcomes on a particular case. But it seems to me entirely appropriate to explore a philosophy of, of jurisprudence that will inform both the, the senators and the public about what is really – their view that's likely to be uh, transposed into decision-making when they're on the court. It won't bind them. Obviously, 30, 40 years down the road, they can change. But it seems to me that's really where we ought to be focusing our attention. And vague terms like judicial restraint or compassion as the, as the litmus test for your judges is just not very informative or useful. Good afternoon. My name is Andy Hawks. I'm a local attorney, and I'd like to hear the panel's views on how the doctrine of stare decisis should be applied to these cases. 
Now, I don't expect you to agree that all 12 cases are examples of the court actually amending the Constitution, but assume Mr. Miller is right about just one of the cases, or assume that the court really did amend the Privileges and Immunities Clause in the slaughterhouse cases. Do you think the doctrine of stare decisis should have any weight in such a case, and if so, why? Um, I, I mean, I think it's the hardest question in all of constitutional law. I don't think there's uh, – there's stare decisis is a, is a doctrine that just about everyone thinks should have weight, should have some consequence, and nobody has been able to uh, articulate in any sort of a um, uh, principled way. I don't, think th- I don't think there is out there that I've seen a principled guide to applying stare decisis the correct way, and yet just about everyone thinks stability in the law and respect for prior decisions of the Supreme Court means something. What that something is, I think, is is hard, and I think um, I think it gets um, really hard when you talk about a case like Slaughterhouse or like Cruikshank, which could be in play in cases like Heller on remand. Uh, they're going to have to overrule an aspect of Cruikshank. Do they just overrule the whole thing? On remand or Heller 2? Well, Heller, Heller incorporation, Heller against state and local governments. I, I think that's going to be a fascinating question as to what they do, how they incorporate. I, I think the Supreme Court will incorporate the Second Amendment against the states, um, whether somebody like Justice, as Justice Thomas, who has already tipped his hand saying he'd be willing to reconsider the, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, whether he wants to do it through that clause rather than due process, is a fascinating upcoming little constitutional um, dispute. And that's, you know, he's, the, the court's already going to have to overrule these three uh, cases from the 1875 to 1900 that say that the Second Amendment isn't incorporated. And so stare decisis doesn't have much weight in that context. And do they go forward and just revolutionize all of constitutional law, bring back the Privileges and Immunities Clause, and change the entire constitutional discussion? Maybe. Uh, it's interesting. But I, I, don't, I don't have, other than to say I think stare decisis has to have some weight. I, I don't have a principled application of it. I'll, I'll make a, uh, in line with uh, the characterization of this book as radical, a, a radical sort of statement on, uh, on stare decisis. Um, stare decisis is a prudential issue. It's not really a, a legal one. It's, you know, how do you weigh the interest in stability of the law versus getting the law right? And a lot of times when you have prudential issues that come up in legal cases, uh, one way of of dealing with it is to stay the mandate pending other appropriate action. I mean, if, if tomorrow the Supreme Court held unconstitutional Social Security or Medicare or any of these programs, which are facially unconstitutional but have been around and clearly are foundational in our society at this point, um, don't you think there would be a constitutional amendment uh, proposed and, you know, passed overwhelmingly uh, in the next, you know, month, year at most, so the court could say that our decision is stayed for uh, a year or, or however, whatever, you know, the, the prudential, you know, thinking is about that, uh, pending, you know, to allow time for Congress and the people to, to work out whether they really want this part of the 
um, you know, judicially amended constitution to be to be formally constitutional. So that's a thought I have on on. I'm, I'm not fully on the Justice Thomas view yet, but I think I think as I work more in this area, I'm, I'm more and more headed towards that. Yeah, I think the question about precedence is a really important one, and it makes me think about the book in a slightly different way, and I think a, a way that rehabilitates, at least in my mind, to, to this extent. Um, I don't mean to rehabilitate, you know, in, the, in that I disagree with it, right? Because I think it, 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 Chip said earlier in the discussion that, you know, this is not an attempt to return to Lochner. And there's different readings you could have of that. One would be that the point of the book is to say these 12 decisions should be overruled. We need the court to decide tomorrow Social Security is unconstitutional. That would be one reading of the book. That raises the question of stare decisis, and it strikes me the least attractive reading of the book. A different way to read the book is as unlimited as the government now seems, it could still be more unlimited yet. And the point of the book from this perspective would be to lay down a vision that as we go forward, there are horizons yet unforeseen that one should foresee and not go to, right? And, and that, I think, is a message of the book. And in that sense, I think what Chip's saying is that that is a basic battle right now in constitutional law in which everyone would agree with the following statements. It's a limited document, and it's a document that's meant to be efficacious at the same time, right? Both protect liberty and to protect the general welfare, and everyone, I think, would agree that there are horizons they could foresee which should not be reached right, on both sides. Not the court's role to just say whatever the government wants to do, you could do it. Where exactly we are going that's a bridge too far is the fight. I think, and I take the book to be a statement. When you're picking your next Supreme Court justice, you want justices who had the instinct that we've already gone pretty far. Right? So they're not going to necessarily go back and roll back all that happened, but they're not going to make that similar kind of mistake going forward. Th- that seems to me a-, a basic animating principle of a lot of people right now, and I take to be, in a way, the real thrust of the book. Well, that's a, that's, that's a fair characterization of at least a significant portion and insight within the book. And for that rehabilitation, I am most right. grateful. <laughs> I know many of you have had your hands patiently up, but on that moment of consensus and... Uh, happiness, I think we should break for lunch. So thanks, ACS. Thanks, Cato.